We have hope. Hope that things can get better. And they will. You called it Jesse James. Jesse, a.k.a. The Bizzle. Oh, The Bizzle, thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle? Thank you, The Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, people. Welcome to the second to last episode of Rebel Season 1, Rebel Resolve, part two in the three-part finale arc, wherein uh, Tarkin gets involved, Kanan gets captured and tortured, they gotta save Kanan, and ultimately meet up with the Rebel fleet, even while sending out message of hope and fighting against all odds. I get plenty in on these three commentaries, so I'm going to go right into it. Queue up to 000 on whatever format you are watching, and I'm going to count us down from 3 to 2 to 1. When I say go, you hit play, and this is going to be great. So here comes the countdown. 3, 2, 1, go. All right, folks, welcome to the second to last episode of season one of Star Wars Rebels, Rebel Resolve, episode uh, 13 or 14, depending on how you are counting. It is the second of the three episode arc to end this season. Um, I should mention, actually, having just come back to, you know, complete, even though I only gotten like nine or ten episodes in uh, before taking a long break on my Rebels commentaries, I am here to finish what I started. I should say I haven't actually watched these, even though I've seen all these episodes a ton, I haven't watched them in quite a while. Um, and I- I'm doing a lot of, you know, <laughs> non-play by play commentary, which is, I think, more interesting to you guys. Um, but uh, as I commented uh, on a uh, recent Rebels episode... You know, Clone Wars really perfected the art of doing three to four episode arcs, um, but they found with Rebels that actually two episode sort of back to back episode, sort of a mini movie was the way to go. We see this in Twilight of the Apprentice. We see this a few times in season three and throughout season four, we see back to back episodes for whatever reason, it works better, even while maintaining a narrative throughout. So Clone Wars would have these epic, but sort of self-contained three to four episode arcs. Um, whereas Rebels has a central story that really starts in season two, picks up in three and goes full steam in four, but is packaged in sort of back to back episodes. So this three-episode arc actually works well because there's been a lot of standalones in the first season and sort of up and down in look and feel and even quality depending on how you want to look at it. So Kanan's been captured. They got the propaganda, anti-imperial propaganda message out. Um, and, you know, now they're going to have to try and rescue Kanan. Of course, he's going to get tortured because it's Star Wars. So we have to, we got to torture our lead characters in Star Wars because that's just how it works, even on the cartoons. And... Uh, you know, it's capped off by the uh, appearance and of and joining with the Rebel Alliance at, at, at the end of the final episode. But this is the, you know, the Empire Strikes Back of the arc. It's the middle episode. Some wins and losses, mostly losses. Things not looking too good for our heroes. I'm not sure how they release this. I do not believe... I think they didn't do any of these back-to-back. So you had to wait a week between each of these. It must have been very painful. Um, right. So this is the whole Imperial, uh, t- you know, we'll see who you really, you're, you know, your real self through torture, um, which we see with Niska 
who's a recurring uh, horrible uh, malicious sadistic bad guy uh on firefly um short-lived amazing joss whedon sci-fi series that you guys all know about um and this guy's obsessed with these you know ancient chinese philosophers that were basically philosophical sadists and talked about how you know even though they're fictional is based on on real philosophical sadism that says you know you don't you can't really discover the, the person the real person until you cause them expose them to great pain and suffering and somehow you know uh, you know the, the few people who aren't just animals who are true humans can survive and even thrive in such a circumstance it's an incredibly misguided philosophy to say the least but it is based on the notion of you know not letting pain take hold of you and Tarkin isn't totally wrong in that if you are a jedi you should be able to dissociate from the pain to a certain degree um you know leia doesn't give up anything with the torture han doesn't give up anything with the torture um you know our true heroes have to go through it apparently you know luke is tortured by the emperor with the lightning and so forth and here kane and i I don't think gives up anything with the torture so trial through pain is the way of the empire Um, something I haven't mentioned. I've mentioned on the podcasts with Jedi Geek Girl and maybe elsewhere. Okay, here's Fulcrum. Now, you know, it, it, after the fact, they credited Ashley Eckstein with the Fulcrum voice. Fulcrum voice. And you can tell with the hood that it's hiding Lekus, uh, you know, because her species, Tukruta, are related in some distant way to Hera's species. The Twi'leks and having these non-hair, you know, giant skin, tentacle-y things coming off your head. Um, and so you can sort of tell with the hood. I don't know if this was actually Ashley Eckstein, but why not? You know, Filoni is great at keeping secrets. Ashley Eckstein being Ahsoka is constantly having to keep secrets as public of a figure as she is. That You know, you can tell by her open, honest, gentle truthful real personality that must be extremely tough and painful for her to keep secrets but why not she probably recorded it just for the hell of it just like (laughs) Filoni did chopper's voice the whole time and didn't tell anyone even though i predicted it by the way so right so here is ezra you think he's gonna start going dark side here but he just gets more determined and even though it doesn't happen until season three when they give him a real command and promote him to like one of the leaders of the rebellion, they have to start building towards it. And the fact that Hera is the one putting the kibosh on this, and I was going to say, she calls him a love early on, and you can tell that they have a history. I never got through the book A New Dawn, that's sort of the prequel about Hera and Kanan, uh, but you know they clearly have romantic past or a tease of romantic past, and we finally get some of it in season four. I promise I wasn't going to spoil anything until the end of this season, but okay, guys, so here it is. If you don't want any spoilers, shut this off now and watch season four of Rebels. So we finally get some kissing and some admission of feelings in season four, and then Kanan dies. Spoiler alert. Ahsoka's also alive after, you know, we're not sure what happened with her fight with Vader at the end of season two. Uh, but that doesn't happen until even later in season four. But, you know, they sort of hint and tease at the romance with Kanan and Hera early on. And then, 
it's away in the background, which was smart. You know, what was even smarter, it was never, ever giving into the temptation of having Sabine and Ezra being a thing. He hits on her early on. There's one episode, I always forget in the middle of the first season, I still forget when Sabine has to straight up shut him down, it's never going to happen. And he never really revisits it again. And they become total brother-sister. Like, they become like Han and Leia and Return of the Jedi in terms of fighting great together, but without the romantic component. Without the I love you, I know. And it was, you know, Ezra's younger. They're not a good match. It was much smarter for them to be brother, sister, and just be, you know, a great fighting duo. And they really turn the corner a few episodes back when Ezra's convinced his parents are dead and Sabine's really trying to convince him to keep his head up and, you know, not give up on them and gives him a picture that she found of when he was young with with his parents, this beautiful image of him just staring at it. And it was Sabine really reaching out as a friend and that really cements their friendship. You can't have multiple romances on a ship. Any romances are tough. And that's why Hera as the leader and Kanan as the secondary leader, you know, they have to push it aside. And it's not until they're well ensconced in the rebellion and things are coming to a head and they finally, Kanan sort of forces the issue and Hera kind of resists like Leia a little bit, but eventually realizes, I don't know if she has a feeling that he's going to die and they're, they're short on time one way or the other. And she finally admits her feelings and they kiss and whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's very sweet. But yeah, as we see on Battlestar Galactica, being trapped on a ship with implacable enemies coming at you every single day with everything they got, it's very complicated, especially if you're the leaders, like Apollo and Starbuck, and especially like Admiral Adama. I guess the compar- the real comparison, oh, here comes the torture, the real comparison in terms of the romance and the characters between Kanan and Hera, even though they're much younger, but in terms of them being the leaders at the top... Uh, of the main cast is very similar to Adama, uh, Admiral Adama and President Roslin in, uh, you know, Eddie Almolson and uh, Mary McDonnell in Battlestar. And so while Battlestar, the final, you know, Battlestar also went four seasons, like Rebels, season four is has some great highs and great lows. I, I think everyone would agree, if you've seen both shows, Rebels season four has way more highs proportionally than season four of Battlestar, which was very uneven. But early on in particular, it was great to see, despite the pain and the complication, that Adama and Rosalind do have some moments together and give in to the romance a little bit, even while it remains complicated and difficult because of the horrible, horrible situation with the Cylons here with the Empire. Yeah, so... You know, it's always comparative power. So Vader's powerful than everyone we've seen in the show so far. Um, But as we see when Ahsoka and Kanan go up against the Inquisitors with Maul kind of playing both sides at the end of season two, Kanan is not as strong. Here comes the lightning torture. Kanan is not as strong as... uh, as Vader, certainly. And he's probably not as strong as Maul from a sheer power standpoint, because the dark side is always going to be more physically powerful. That's just how they roll. And that's what makes, you know, Luke and advanced Ezra and, you know, Ray, as we've seen so far, you know, true exceptions and being able to be strong, powerfully strong in the light side up. Oh, here's Vizaga. It's great. Not as great as Hondo, but you need this character. You, Hondo is, you know, almost cartoonish. Vizago is more of a believable 
you know, smuggler uh, and actually darker in some ways. I mean, Hondo's dark when you see the Clone Wars and how horrible, it, manipulative, and you know, n- no concern for human life he has in the Clone Wars. If you just watch Rebels, though, Visago is the darker character, so you needed that. Especially because they wanted to play Hondo a bit, quote unquote, lighter. But anyways, comparative powers, Kanan is stronger than the Inquisitors, and he temporarily beats Maul while blind, and Kanan actually gets stronger while blind, which is, you know, again, taken from Dune, and we see in The Matrix, and is an important recurring theme about seeing without your eyes, and eyes can deceive you, and so forth. So, Kanan being able to resist the Inquisitor and resist physical torture is completely believable. They say Kanan is a Jedi, right? So this is never clear. So Kanan's not officially a Jedi Knight until season two. So I'm not sure when you go from being a Padawan to a Jedi versus a Jedi Knight. I think Kanan is technically not a Jedi. He was trained as a Jedi before Order 66 when his master was killed, but now Ezra is going to show major powers here and, you know, force the issue, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) what's great about uh kevin kiner who does the soundtrack for all the rebel seasons is you know you gotta use the force theme you gotta use the main star wars you know luke skywalker theme they work in some leia theme even without leia they definitely work in some han leia theme when it comes to the romance with with uh um I'm doing a favor with Hera and, and Kanan, but he's very restrained on it. And like in Rogue One, the way that Krennic's theme teases the Imperial theme, and the way I mean, we do get tons of Force theme straight up in Rogue One, but we, they make us work for it, and they make us work for it here. Now, with him becoming more of a Jedi and Kanan's Force powers, we're going to get the Force theme. But Kevin Kiner's very restrained and very committed to doing his own sound that draws heavily from John Williams, obviously, and playing on all the main themes regularly, but also making it a score that 95% in terms of sort of the narrative score that's playing behind all these scenes, because it's not Star Wars without constant music, makes it his own. I will say, uh, when I rewatched A New Hope with Simi, I forgot how much extended... I think A New Hope of all the movies has the longest extended periods of no music, especially during the Death Star run. There's like whole minutes where it's just brutal warfare. Rogue One, we see that too. That's the best thing to do with brutal warfare is you got to just do sound and sometimes even cut back on the sound and just have visuals uh, depending on the, the situation. But in a show like this, which is very short and fast moving, you know, constant music is a necessity. Now, listening to the soundtrack for Rebels is not super satisfying because it is mostly narrative score. But like here with the the winds, with with the uh, the woodwinds, sorry, one way off key. You know they're teasing the the Rebel theme, which I I can't hit the key right now because I'm multitasking. Yeah, it's always asking for favors. The thing is, Ezra. <laughs> Constantly manipulating the smugglers, owing them favors. He always pays them back or one-ups them. That's what's great about Ezra. Uh-oh. Yeah. I mean, this is Hera's lowest point. She's not on board with saving Kanan. She's not willing to do what's necessary. She's criticizing Ezra. You know, 
I mean, there's a direct line and mirror between this and the, in the final season where Ezra really steps forward. The difference is by season four, Ezra's really proven himself and is older and has grown and so forth, and, and so they're willing to follow him, even though Hezra is, Hera is still nominally, I mean, more than nominally, the strategic leader, the moral leader, and so forth. Ezra's kind of the tactical leader on the ground and sort of the inspirational leader. I mean, the two of them together are kind of like Princess Leia. I always call Hera Leia, but there's a lot of Leia in in Ezra, which is why, although the Leia episode is not my favorite, by the end I love it because A, I love Leia, even though it's not Carrie Fisher, and B, the connection she establishes with Ezra and their shared experiences despite their diverse backgrounds is great and really makes me tear up and gives me chills. I mean, but Hera is constantly suspicious. Her eyes are narrowing. She's not into this. She has to go on a journey here to trust Ezra and realize that, right, sometimes you got to rescue the soldier even while... I mean, they're not even with the main rebellion now, but she's already looking at the quote-unquote bigger mission. Now, of course, she's in touch with Fulcrum, a.k.a. Ahsoka, and they're in touch with the rebellion. So Hera is seeing the bigger picture. She can't tell them because it's need to know. Of course, the rebellion has to, uh, you know... uh, show themselves to the entire ghost crew by the end of the season. Hera is torn between all of that. And the fact that this is all under the surface and you don't get that until multiple rewatches watching the whole series and really thinking about it shows you that it's so much more than a kid's show. I've said that there's only five or six weak Rebels episodes and I really believe that because other than the Billy D. Williams episode and a couple others which are just straight up not very good in terms of the flow and the writing, there's always something to hold on to. If nothing else, then Sabine and Zeb just crushing stormtroopers is fantastic. <laughs> I love Zeb. Again, I'll, I'm not going to say it enough. The couple Zeb episodes are some of the best, maybe my favorite, and the the, the biggest shame is that they they don't give Zeb enough to do the way some of the Star Trek Next Generation characters like Troy and Jordy and so forth never quite get enough to do. I love all the paint jobs they give to Chopper. Um, oh man, this is beautiful. Woo! But even though Ezra didn't want to say the message, Kanan's capture inspired him to do it, and it really liberated him and freed him. Now, he's going to be very saddened to learn that his parents are still... He's going to learn later that his parents were alive long enough to hear the message, but then are actually dead. They heard it, which is very sad, but also empowering. They got to hear it and realize, you know, the impact that he's making and following in their legacy, which is beautiful. (laughs) The droid switch is great. (laughs) I think the actually... Even though some people don't like Zeb's eyes, I, I love everything about Zeb's design. The character I think they have the most trouble with is Sabine. And the fact that she looks more in her element in the helmet actually really makes sense with her character being Mandalorian. Um, but the, the brilliance of Sabine's design isn't actually really realized until she goes back to her natural brown hair, eases back on the graffiti you know, doesn't keep dying her. I mean, I love the dye hair. I love the graffitied armor, but in season four, when she's growing up and things are getting really serious and they have to be undercover and so forth. And she goes back to her normal, she has short hair, you know, brown hair, which I assume is her normal, I'm <laughs> smiling, normal hair. You start to realize how human Sabine actually looks. And so I think what threw me off was the fact that Sabine 
although slightly alien as a Mandalorian with her skin tone and her eyes and so forth and the, uh, the almond shape of her face actually is is extremely human looking once she tones tones everything down uh in season four you know hair with the earmuffs constantly is great you know obviously dr afra who's fantastic i think in the comics you know in the goggles definitely draws from this you know it's a way of really empowering your female characters to be active and in charge uh with just a visual cue The, the droid's helping even though he's on the wrong side it's great I don't know where Lucas got the idea to have such complicated motivations and morality for droids in the original movies that they just keep expanding on. But the fact that, like, you know, R2 and C-3PO continue to be classic, Chopper's a fan favorite, BB-8 is one of people's favorite characters even though he's just a soccer ball version of R2-D2, but he has his own personality. The murder bot droids in, in Vader and Afra are, are fantastic. Look at this. This is awesome. I love it. Because Chuppard's, even though he's got the manipulator hands, he just looks like a big rust bucket, but he's got the, he's got the claws. He's got the manipulators, and he does have a jetpack on his butt, which is great. Oh, man, look at this with the ghost. Ugh. Yeah. I sometimes think they didn't have the budget in season one, but this looks as good as anything they've done. Now they've got two droids. Constantly giving Chopper paint jobs. The way they work in Sabine's art skills in so many practical ways and character ways throughout the series is brilliant. And what's weird about the Clone Wars is that really the only main characters in the Clone Wars are Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Ahsoka. As it goes along, it's mostly Ahsoka. But three's not enough. So then you have Yoda and Windu and Palpatine and Padme and Barris, and they have so many great sort of secondary leads or, you know, guest plus characters. But with the five characters plus Chopper on the ghost, six is just that perfect number. We see it with Rogue One is six. Now, Firefly has nine, but the Shepard and River and Simon Tam are outsiders. The main crew, if you include Inara, is also six. There's something about the six that, that just works. And again, the original Star Wars cast. We talk about the big three, Leia, Han, and Luke. But we also have R2, C-3PO, and Chewie, also six. Uh-oh, Mustafar. Jedi go to die. That's where Vader is stewing on his rage. Oh, yeah, baby. All right, people. To be continued. There we go. All right. I'm going to record a quick intro to this. Take a short break. I'm going to record the final episode. I released three almost immediately when I started doing this again. So sorry for overloading you guys with podcasts. I was just so excited to get back on it. So I'm trying to figure out whether I want to release one every day or two or three, you know, once or twice a week at once. Um, But I'll probably release these three at once after taking a short break. So I hope you are enjoying these. I'm going to jump into the season finale alley which is glorious for so many reasons appropriately named a fire across of the galaxy and may the force be with you and for now the bizzle is out